Invertebrates are animals with a public image crisis. As I've often noted here, they are gross, creepy, pestilent. I think they're meant. They're interesting, they're strange, they're unlike us. And yes, they are important, utterly tied to the successful functioning of our life support systems. This whole podcast, I suppose, is a kind of piece of advocacy on the behalf of the invertebrate world. I've never envisioned the project as something academic. I want it to be an exercise in enthusiasm, a celebration. I want anyone to be able to find something here, because I think that invertebrate life is exciting, and I want to share my enthusiasm. I don't want this podcast to be a love-in for, in inverted commas, insect people. Come one, come all. Come have a think about invertebrates, please. This being the case, I have to ask myself, how best to fly the flag for our leggy, scuttlesome mates? How best to present them to the world? To share them with people who might otherwise be lost in the overwhelming, culturally normalised resentment and revulsion that surrounds the invertebrate world. In this podcast, I talk with Richard Bugman-Jones, entomologist and writer and long-time flag flyer for insects and other arthropods. It's a reasonably general conversation about creepy crawlies and what makes them so exciting. So if you like gentle insect chat and enthusiasm, you should enjoy it. It was a pleasure to speak with Richard about some of the ways that he shares insects with the world at large. Public bug hunts, natural history clubs, and his writing. I'm a long-time fan of Richard. Richard's book, House Guest, House Pest, is a personal favourite, a real balm for the soul during a particularly bleak time of my life. I've got a signed copy. In this book, and in Richard's other work, there's a sense of wonder, a fondness and fascination. I always have the sense of Richard's excitement about insects. He's on their side. Not many people have written a book of insect limericks. Richard has. It's new and we'll be talking about it shortly. And as the host of the annual Nunhead Cemetery Bug Hunt, Richard probably has to take a degree of blame for reigniting my interest in invertebrate life as an adult. In this podcast, we'll talk about living a life which is rife with insects, about the ways of teaching about insects, ways of talking about insects. And I do mean insects largely, though of course, as ever, there'll be ample crossover into the arachnid world and the mollusk world, and so on and so forth. So after this musical sting, in praise of all insects we sing, the bugman and me, with fondness and glee, invertebrate chat we will bring. Hey Richard, how are you this evening? I'm very well, thank you. I've just had some uh, some birthday cake from my daughter's birthday yesterday. Oh, wonderful. I'm sitting here with a cup of tea, so I may occasionally uh, be m- mumbling through crumbs. Crumbs are very much in- encouraged. It's I've um, My setup here is that I am, it's my strangest setup yet. I've got the laptop and the microphone balanced on some steps that are used to get things down from a high cupboard, and I am sitting on some pillows on the floor. The room's in bits, so... It sounds very adapted and inventive. Exactly, we adapt, we overcome. But we're going to talk today about about kind of outreach on behalf of insects, I guess, and about sort of flying the flag for the insect world, and about this wonderful new book you've written, A Natural History of Insects in 100 Limericks, uh, written sort of in collaboration with your son, I believe. That's right, yeah. Wonderful. Well, before we get into that, would it be okay just to kind of outline what has been your personal and professional relationship with with insects and invertebrates? 
Well, they've always been there because I got my interest in natural history from my father. And he was mainly a botanist. He, by day, he was an accountant, but he had a very uh, keen expert amateur interest in botany. But he also carried an insect net uh, always, and he had a large insect collection. He also studied snails and fossils and ferns and bryophytes and all manner of things. And I was pulled along in my pushchair um, whenever the family went out on, on country rambles. There's a photograph of me aged not two years old walking towards the camera with my dad's insect net, you know, as if it were my own. So that there was never a time before insects. They were always there. They were always part of my life. And it was, um, although I, I focused on insects rather than other bits of natural history later on, but I don't think there was any doubt that I would somehow be immersed in, in nature and wildlife and the environment. Wonderful. And, and as a... As a professional entomologist, what has been your kind of, what have your professional encounters with insects involved? Well, mostly the um, the, what, the stuff I do. This is my third, third or is it fourth career? I can't remember. <laughs> I started off, my first sort of proper job was um, in medical publishing. Um, and But then people knew that I was an entomologist. And so local people asked me to do environmental surveys, just small ones. And that then escalated until I stopped doing any publishing and only did environmental surveys. And that's mostly what I do now. I go out looking for insects as part of ecological studies or impact assessments or nature conservation exercises. I go and see what insects I can find, tell the people why it's interesting, why it's unusual, what it means about their particular bit of the environment. And... um, yeah, so it's turned from a boyhood hobby into um, something I make my living out of. Fantastic. You've written a number of, of wonderful books and things like that. I wonder, you, you've mentioned that your father was a, a naturalist. Is it the case then that, I mean, a lot of people, uh, children are often compelled by insects and things, but, but there's that kind of fork in the path where they either become sort of culturally conditioned to be revolted by them and afraid of them or they become like, like yourself they become engrossed in in that world and they become fascinated by them was it your, your sort of father's uh, influence that led you down the the more cultured path absolutely yes because um i was never scared of insects i was never worried or upset or confused um and i was always fascinated and my children know that if they want to stop me in my tracks, all they have to do is shout, Dad, weird bug! <laughs> I will just go and investigate. And my father did the same to me. Um, I would come running up with something clasped in my hand and say, I found this, what is it? And so many of those sort of seminal moments I can remember, like the first time I ever found a click beetle. I thought it was amazing. Mm. Or the first time I ever caught a clouded yellow because I had to run my little legs off to try and catch it because they go like the wind. Um, or the first time I saw a whirly gig beetle and looked at it under a hand lens and saw that it had got four eyes, whereas most insects have got two. And, uh, and so being able to go, what on earth is this, is something that started very early on. And it never went away. A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people suggest that Kids are fascinated by natural history, but there becomes a point in teenage years when they suddenly become not cool. Mm. But because I was immersed in, I was very deep in, 
um, I was able to find the coolness. I was able to appreciate the bloodthirstiness of a predator or the disgustingness of a parasitoid or the bizarre resemblance between non-stinging hoverflies and venomous wasps. And so I, although I, I didn't brag about it at school uh, or, cl- you know, go on about insects all the time at school, um, I, it, in my private life, it was always there and I was always fascinated to find out the next thing. And so I never lost that wonder. I still haven't. I've still got it today. I'd like to think that increasingly people will. And and that is that is part of some of the work you've done because in writing books and articles and making media appearances and conducting bug hunts and things, and all these sort of outreach programmes on behalf of, of the insect world, my sense is that that is, is to try and engender this sense of wonderment, right? It is because it's really it's really exciting being able to tell somebody a fact and for them to go, what? <laughs> That's amazing. And I get it when I read a book and I, or an article, some obscure article about insects, and I stop and go, wow, I didn't know that. Um, and so it's fascinating to be able to tell kids because you know kids are open to all things. They 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 know they don't know things and they're happy to be instructed. And then they go and tell their parents. And you can see their parents sort of slightly looking askance as if to say, has he made that up? That doesn't sound right. Of course, it is right. Um, and at the bug hunts especially, it's, it's, there's very much the parents hanging on in the background. Um, they're leaning further and further in to listen to some obscure thing about some peculiar critter. And then they go, I didn't know that good grief. Is that, so, is that such and such? And then you find you're, you're talking to the parent as much as you are to the child, and they're both getting something out of it, I hope. They're both um, having a world opened up in front of them that was was perhaps not in view earlier on in the morning. Having a world brought into view that was that was never far away in the first place, which is what I think is so engrossing about these animals. That's right. I mean, one of the things, it's I often, the cynic in me occasionally comes out, but actually I'm not at all surprised. That isn't... Most people don't know anything about insects, so you can tell anybody a fact about insects. And the trouble is they probably won't know anything about it. Mm. And that's because people, unless they, unless they look at something in particular or they pay very close attention when they're watching a wildlife documentary, on the whole, their appreciation of nature is still at the level of Aristotle. It's still two and a half thousand years ago. And it, they're stereotypes, so they know that ants are small creatures that run around stealing your sandwich crumbs or getting in your underpants and stinging you. And they know that wasps sting you, but they don't know why. Uh, they know that butterflies fly around in the daytime. Um, are they different to moths? Don't know. So but they know some facts, but their understanding is incredibly limited. And so almost... Inevitably, you can start to talk about even the common, most commonplace of creatures. And people's understanding is suddenly opened up. I mean, one of the standard ones is people, I don't know, showing me a lesser stag beetle. Mm. And you, talk, you say, oh, it's the lesser stag beetle. And they're looking, will that grow up into a big stag beetle? And this idea of growth or evolution or... Uh, physiology, any any sort of fairly simple scientific understanding is 
is actually beyond most people. And that's not because most people are stupid or they're, they're ignorant or whatever. It's, it's simply because most people left the study of science and maths behind them probably age 15. Hmm. The majority of people, uh, the last time they thought about any maths or any science was you know, the equivalent of GCSE age now. And, and most people have moved on and they've never had to consider these things. And so they really don't have any understanding of the natural world other than a few vague stereotypes about mm. you know, a few big showy creatures that they've heard of or seen pictures quite often they've seen cartoons of. And, that, and they're influenced by that rather than any genuine knowledge. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about this um, this book, which is which is packed full of, of knowledge then. And this is Natural History of Insects in 100 Limericks. Could you tell us a little bit about this new book? Well, it started off as, as not a book. It started off, um, I've always loved limericks. I do like limericks, mainly because they're, you can get away with so much and they're very silly. You don't have to um, be very erudite. You don't have to be very deep. Um, and you can come up with a bit of nonsense quite quickly. There's an easy formula to follow. You know, five lines, different lengths, a rhyme scheme that's absolutely fixed. So um, you, you don't have to work too hard to come up with a limerick. Um, and Calvin had come home from school where he did an after-school art club where he'd been doing some drawings where you put the pen down and you, you move the pen around and you don't pick the pen up. You do a sort of simple sketch. It's all a single line. You start, you start moving the pen around. You never move the pen off the paper until you've finished. And he was very good at this, and they're very stark and simple and, and quite stylized. And he did a couple of insects, and I thought, oh, that's, that's great. Um, and I'd written a couple of limericks as well. You know, they're quite fun to have for various things. And so we started doing these of an evening when he was, I think we started when he was 12. Wow. Um, he, he, would, he would do a dark, I, I, would, I would do a limerick and tell him, oh, why don't you do a, a, a glue worm, do a stag beetle, do a blowfly maggot or whatever. And he'd do the drawing and I'd do the, um, uh, the, the limerick. And then after we got to about 30, we, we thought, well, why, why don't we try and do something with these? And I rather randomly came up with this idea of doing 100, which then pr actually proved quite a task. Um, <laughs> and it took us several months in the end, I think, doing you know half a dozen the odd evening in the week. And uh, it was great father-son bonding time. And and in the end, and then we you know we we had to keep finding the gaps and increase it and count up and we've got seventy two and now we've got eighty five and now we've got ninety nine um, and eventually we got to the hundred and um, I thought we I'll just you know maybe photocopy this and hand bind a couple of copies um, and it was only when I was talking to a publisher uh, that he agreed he agreed to do it. I don't know whether he's regretting that now, but um, uh, he agreed to publish, you know, a small number of these books. And um, I'm utterly delighted with the result. I, I think Calvin is too. He's quite proud of them. Feel free not to share this information if, if it's if it's um, personal. How old is Calvin now? He's 16 now. Fantastic drawings. Yeah, he, he, did, he started them when he was 12. Um, the last one was done a few days before his 13th birthday. Maybe it would be nice to hear one or two. So... Are there any? Um, could could you give us a little a little blast of one of your limericks, please? Okay, let's let's do with um, here we are. Death Watch Beetle. 
I quite like the Death Watch beetle. The Death Watch is lost, so it's said, on heavy oak beam he has fed. In the cold, dark void, he can't hear a void, so takes to headbanging instead. Do you know what? I always, I always enjoy the forced rhymes, the forced, the kind of forcing of the structures. For the for the listener, alongside your the limericks, you get this this beautiful line drawing of the creature itself, but also information which which relates to what has been talked about in the limerick itself. So if I find the the Death Watch Beetle page page forty six, page forty six. Thank you so much. You then have a sort of a, a succinct blurb of the Death Watch Beetle. Death Watch yeah, Beetle. Why it, why it bangs its head? Exactly. So. This this book, which is you know, it's it's fun, it's approachable, it, it's full of really valuable information in science. It's it is ultimately it takes the form of a list, right? And a lot of books about insects and about animals are essentially lists of animals, so field guides and encyclopedias and things like that. I wonder to what extent you see this book as a kind of guidebook. It is a certain to a certain extent a guidebook because what I've what I'm hoping to do is to sort of insinuate vague biological ideas. So notions of ecology or physiology or evolution um, that normally people might switch off if they were to try and understand it through reading a textbook. So the idea of the Death Watch, um, they're woodworm, but they're bigger than the domestic woodworm. And so after a while, they've made these dark... Uh, voids, quite big spongy voids in in the timber, um, but of course they're in they're inside, they're in blackness. They can't see anything. So how do they find a mate? Um, and the way they find a mate is by sound, just as grasshoppers or cicadas signal to a mate. But the way they do it is by banging their head on the wood and making that tick 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 uh, that sounds a bit like a clock. Um, and so that's how they they enable each other to find each other in the, in the darkness. Um, so to a certain extent, uh, although I didn't deliberately make a list of what ecological notions do I think, you know, what are the, the top 100 ecological lessons that you can give someone? Mm. Um, I didn't set off uh, to do that. In the end, each, hopefully each insect has some sort of um, biological lesson or some sort of biological um, metaphor that, that I could get some information across to people more than just, oh, this is a blue beetle. Isn't it pretty? Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it kind of makes sense of the book a little bit for me because it's quite an eclectic set of insects in, in some ways. It's not, it's very much not your your classic British insects exclusively. It's not your your household pests and things like that. You know, you've got things in here like uh, ant lions and lace bugs, water biter, crane fly, but then also you know certain types of ants, specifically bullet ant, clegg, magpie moth. It, it's it's a a real range, and so in, including some that are specifically larval forms. So it makes sense that you are essentially selecting insects based on yeah, a lesson to be learned from each one, I guess, to a degree. Is what, what, Was there a sense also that you wanted to to celebrate certain maybe lesser-known insects? Yeah, I've always done that. Um, there, When I was younger, because that sounds, make me sound old, when I was younger, it was 
it was already slightly odd for young boys and girls to go off and collect butterflies. My father's generation, that was quite a widespread thing. You know, kids mm. had a butterfly collection or whatever. And it was almost like a standard uh, trope that ran through a certain, possibly a certain level of middle class society. Um, but when I was younger, that, that had, it, some people did still collect insects or collect butterflies. But because I'd got my interest of, from my dad, and he had already he he although he you know studied butterflies and moths, he he also collected bees and flies and beetles and all manner of peculiar things. So I very quickly, as it were, got bored with butterflies and moths. They they were very pretty, but they were all a bit the same. And I was fasc- more fascinated by strange beetles that did things secretively or odd critters that lived under bark or small specks of nothingness that really didn't look very much but when you looked at them under a microscope were amazing um so i've always had that that idea of of trying to promote the diversity of insects away from some of the more popular groups which are just covered to exhaustion in you know all books and magazines and, and and you know across the media as far as you you could look if you're enjoying grubbing in the filth come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media you can follow grubbing in the filth on instagram and twitter on instagram it's at grubbing in the filth and on twitter it's at gitf podcast you can also email grubbing in the filth at gmail.com i'd love to hear from you whether it's your own perspective to share a story a photo or what have you well, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the other what I'm choosing to call outreach or advocacy that you've done on behalf of beetle, uh, beetles of insects. We mentioned uh, the bug hunt earlier, I think, and this is kind of my earliest familiarity with with your work and with your advocacy comes through the Nunhead bug hunt on the cemetery open day. Nunhead has a, a wonderful sort of rewilded cemetery space, which is um, home to endless gorgeous animals um which might come as a surprise to sort of non-londoners that do like to think that we are kind of you know all crawling through the filth and the muck and the mire choking on fumes but it, it, it's not the case can you tell us what does the nunhead cemetery bug hunt entail <laughs> um, it's very simple and uh, i just want to think we've been doing it for it's coming up for thirty years, I think. We've, you know, we've had a couple of a couple of gaps because um, uh, COVID last year stopped, mm. and, and in fact, this year it's been um, postponed until September. Um, but it's very simple. Uh, the kids come up to the desk which we've got set up, and they collect a container, and this is a little plastic pot with a lid. Um, then they go off, and while they're wandering around the cemetery, which is effectively a woodland now, it's a woodland with some open spaces, flowery paths, um, log piles. It's it's run as a nature reserve with really a bit of cemeteryness left in it, but it's effectively a nature reserve nowadays. So as they're wandering off, looking at some of the other exhibits and some of the other stalls, people selling plants and the, the cafe, doing guided tours. Um, they see what bugs they can find sitting on flowers, on leaves, crawling up tree trunks, under logs. They pop them in the pot and later on during the day they come back to the stool and um, they tip it out and I tell them what they found, some of the exciting things they've come across. 
And then we have this thing where we, we have a certificate. So we write their name and then write down the bugs that they found, including the Latin names. They were they very keen to have that. And um, then I sign it with a big flourish. And they've got um, a certificate that they can take away. You know, it's an A4 page saying certificate in big letters and it's decorated with whatever insects we've got that year. Um, and it's something they can stick on their bedroom wall or show to their grandparents or their teacher or, you know, their neighbours. And um, it's brilliant fun. We get mobbed every year. We get kids come back year after year after year. We've had a couple of second-generation bug hunters who did the, the, the kids did their, the bug hunt, I don't know, 25 years ago, and then they come back with their two-year-old or three-year-old to do, to do the bug hunt, and it carries on like that. And it's always great fun. And I'm always hoarse at the end of the day because I've been talking so much or shouting enthusiastically to these kids. Um, and um, I'm completely exhausted, but it is so exhilarating because, um, you know, the kids really love it. And we, we always find something really interesting. And even the most mundane of creatures, you know, you can tell them, oh, that's a that's um, uh, a, a rough woodlouse. Do you know what the name of the rough woodlouse is? Porcelio scaber. That's Latin. It means scabby little pig. And they giggle at that. So the, mm. almost almost everything. There's a there's like a stock anecdote that you can come out with, and then there are always the new things, and you can say genuinely. Wow, I've never seen that before in Nunhead Cemetery. That's amazing. Where did you find that? And um, you know the, that that sort of link uh, to the, the natural world. You know, you think, oh, there's a spark gone in there. I hope it will kindle, and off it goes. I, I I've been made a figure of fun in my household because you've mentioned these two and three year olds, and I I've been referred to in my home before as the only adult in the bug hunt queue. Which is you're, you're absolutely not. Let me assure you. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear it. Well, and I've also this interview is, is a great. It's it's a a lovely moment for me because it means I get to dig out my old certificate. And I was wondering, presumably there are certain insects that come up a lot. There are certain insects that must excite you more. I was wondering if you could give me a sort of on on the scale of things on a on a zero to ten scale. How, how how excellent you think my finds at the bug hunt were? <laughs> when was this? What, what day? Oh, okay. So we are talking 2015 was my inaugural bug hunt. Okay, so it's not that long ago. Not, okay. not, not that long ago. Now, my, my first find was a cardinal beetle. What do you make of that? They're lovely because they're, they're such a beautiful creature, that gorgeous scarlet. Uh, and was it the one with the red head or the black head? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it was... Let's see if it was... You can't read my handwriting, can pyro- you? I've got Pyrochiroae, maybe. Oh, Pyrochiroacoxinia. Uh, that is the one with the black head, which is supposedly rarer than the one with the yellow head. Excellent. That's very good bug hunting on my behalf. Yeah. No, they're lovely things. They're not, they're not scarce, but you don't find them every day. Sure. Um, and they, they turn up every May in Nunhead. And because they're so bright... They're quite big. They're sort of 10 to, 10 to 12 millimetres long. Um, and they're very active, crawling around on the herbage. But kids regularly find them. Mm. Well, my, my next find is a, a queen ant, Leptothorax acavorum. Oh, well, Leptothorax is an unusual ant because um, that's a tiny one. So the queen, even the queen, isn't, isn't very big. Um, they make very small nests of only 50 to 100 workers. So again, very widespread across across uh, England, but not common. 
My last one that I'm gonna give to you, I'm gonna, I've got the um, I've got your your limerick to accompany it, which is the stag beetle larva. Uh, a stag beetle maggot had grown to completion as far as he'd known. He stopped and pupated, but he should have waited. He's tiny. He's all skin and bone. South East London's a bit of a hotbed for these animals. Is that right? That's right. Um, although stag beetles, I think technically you can find across most of England, or records of them across most of England, the only place you can genuinely see them regularly is South East London. And that's the sort of triangle between Richmond, Bromley and Peckham. And that is the hotspot. That's probably when 99% of all the records come from every year. Um, We're very lucky. I'm uh, really pleased that most years I see them flying around in the garden. Um, And part of that is because South East London used to be very wooded. Mm -hmm. And when it was developed in the late 19th century, bulldozers hadn't been invented. And so the piecemeal growth of the streets and the houses effectively meant that trees were left in situ, stumps were left in situ. They weren't grubbed out and the land wasn't raised clean so that um, the builders could get in and build en masse. And so even though the land was developed, the, the habitat that the snags lay their eggs in, wood underground, is still there. And um, so as the houses went up, the habitat remained. And the other main thing is that, of course, they f- the only time you can really guarantee to see them is about nine o'clock in the evening between May the 20th and June the 20th. You know, So they're very short-lived. They're only active for a very short time. They spend years and years and years as a grub in the ground eating rotten wood and then have a few days, possibly a couple of weeks, as an adult. And, and they fly around, and they, they almost certainly fly around in the open countryside, but they don't get seen. Mm. Whereas in southeast London, people are sitting in their gardens at half past eight or nine o'clock on a lovely May or June evening, having a glass of something or a barbecue. And so they spot these creatures flying around. So part of it is a sort of historical reason why we've got them but part of it is a sociological reason that um people people are there available on site in order to be able to spot these beasts flying around in the air well as a as a long-time devotee of of beetles you know as a, as a kid the stag beetle probably for a lot of kids that was the one that i i always sort of dreamed of seeing and then i've lived in london for and in southeast london for uh 10 11 years now and I'd never seen one until until this last year. And this last year, I saw both lesser and and what's the opposite of lesser? Lesser and full on um, yes. stag beetles. One one in in Peckham Rye Park. One male uh, full on stag, as I'm calling it. But uh, but also a pair um, early in the morning, not doing very well, lying by the road. Um, yeah. Who who I think had had come to the end of their life. But this is one of that they um because they they fly or they they presumably they fly they get together they mate in the evening um but then they've got to find somewhere safe and the female's got to be able to get somewhere to lay her eggs and so yes you do very often find them crushed underfoot Mm -hmm. in the morning and they're probably 
sort of trying to find somewhere to shelter um, as the day warms up after having sort of roosted somewhere during the night. And that's when they get trampled on or driven over by cars or whatever. And it's, that's, that's rather sad to see them like that. It is. It was th- these ones in particular that the the female had, she, she was... She was on her back. She was, she was, she had departed, but the male was still, um, he was on his back, but he was having a good old wriggle. So I was able mm. to put him somewhere a bit more out of the way, but I don't know how long he lasted. But either way, from the perspective of someone who'd always kind of dreamed of seeing a stag beetle, that, it felt like a, a fitting end to my time in London. Yeah, no, they're beautiful things. And I, we, we're, I always feel incredibly privileged when I find one, I can hold it in my hand. And again, I always run indoors with one cupped in my hand to show to everyone. Of course. Um, it's got to be one of the most kind of um, impressive of all the of all the British insects, certainly. Oh, it is, yeah. Certainly the, with the males, uh, those, uh, the antlers, mm-hmm. the, the jaws that they've got. Um, yes, impressive or dangerous looking, possibly, depending on your outlook on insects. Of course. You can now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Grubbing the Filth and want to make a donation, like a benevolent Victorian, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash rubbingcast, or you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. Childhood, for, for almost everyone I speak to about insects, about invertebrates, childhood seems to be where the interest begins. Very few people seem to have come to them at the tail end of the teenage years it's it is people who have like you said have maintained that interest and maintained that fascination and another another place you do or have done outreach on behalf of insects um is a natural history club at a local primary school to us here i wonder if you could give us a sense of some of the kind of insect activities that have unfolded there um, yeah, it's not just insects. I have to I have to be careful not to right. do too many insects, otherwise um, uh, I feel I'm I'm shortchanging the kids. Um, we uh, yeah, it, it very much depends what I found or what I'm interested in. So there's no because it's an after school club. I don't have to worry about teaching the kids anything. I don't have to worry about the curriculum. I don't have to worry about telling them too much of this and not enough of that. So it's very often a question of, of if I found something interesting that week or I've come across a new idea um, and I'll go in and I'll take um, when the um, one of my favorites is when the wolf spiders are running around in the garden. These are Pardoza uh, species. They, they run around. They're called wolf spiders because they run around together. And people used to imagine that they hunted in packs. Mm which of course is nonsense. They they don't make a web. They hunt by running after things. And it just happens that they like running around in the sun altogether. And they do this wonderful thing. The males signal to the females using their palps uh, in a kind of semaphore um, by holding them up and then wobbling one down and then putting it back up and then wobbling the other down and so on. And the male palps look a bit like boxing gloves. They've got these little black nobbles on the end. Um, so they're brilliant at signalling to a very visual um, organism. And they have to make sure that the female's receptive, not going to eat it, uh, not already mated. Um, and, of course, it's the right species. Uh, that would be a terrible thing if, if uh, they approached the wrong species and wasted their time trying to court some other sort of spider. So I take along the spiders and we have them in glass tubes and some of the kids go, oh, I don't like spiders. 
Um, and then we have a discussion about arachnophobia or whatever. And then we do semaphore. So we get the kids at one end trying to signal to the other. So the, the, the link is um, it's usually trying to do some sort of activity based on some creature. But it varies from, uh, you know, doing semaphore signaling to um, uh, making fossils out of um, a plaster of Paris and making impressions in them, uh, or perhaps snail racing, uh, where you can see the ripples of the snail's belly as it goes up a, a sheet of glass. You can look at it from the other side. Um, and then, you know, give them pictures and they can colour them in and we can talk about camouflage or uh, warning colours, uh, names of creatures, mythical creatures. So there's a whole raft of different different things that we do. Um, I have to be careful not to repeat myself because some of the kids come year on year to Natural History Club. Well, and um, one, one thing I don't want is for them to say, we did this. Of course. Four years ago. <laughs> well, you... You mentioned spiders, and one thing I wondered about is because you know I'm I work with kids. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a primary school teacher, and I try and get them enthusiastic about about insects and about animals generally. But you know, insects are so accessible to us, and they're just there. You know, we had damselflies come in. We see spiders and, and bees and, and and stag beetles, and inevitably, like you say, there is a often quite a negative response to these animals um be it fear be it disgust and you're up against such a lot of that that vast negativity that surrounds spiders mm. in particular right how how would you characterize the the responses that that you see in children and, and do you find that that does change um it does it's funny um, I don't know quite how the kids are self-selecting, but obviously if they're really if they really don't like nature and they're not totally, they probably wouldn't sign up to Natural History mm. Club. Um, but inevitably, there's someone who claims to be scared of spiders, right? Um, and but you know, all the the creatures are in little glass jars; they're not not going to get out. Um, and so you can always you can always put people at ease by saying, oh, well, you know, you don't have to hold them. You don't have to look at them. You can, you can color in a picture of one. Here you are, or, or do, do a word search about one or, um, uh, uh, you know, make a, a limerick up about one. Um, so you don't have to, you don't, you'd never force anything onto anyone, but it, it's actually very rare. It's perhaps, you know, one child in, in a class, once a year right. will have some sort of squeamishness. And occasionally, by the end of the lesson, they've got over it and they're holding a spider or maybe the shed skin of a spider in the palm of their hand, grinning, um, as if to say, look how clever I am. Um, and so that's, that's always um, rewarding as well. I'm sure, yeah. Do you think that there's you know, with, with children or with kind of celebrating insect life, invertebrate life more broadly, do you think there's a, a moral imperative to to defend and celebrate these creatures? Um, yes, it's not so much um, that they they need defending because although some people have negative attitudes towards insects, the worst thing is to have indifference to them and 
it's actually showing showing the kids that these are interesting and curious and strange and how their diversity is important or how weird and wonderful and beautiful they look under a lens. Um, that That's actually the key thing that I would try and get across. And that that's something I try and get across to adults as well because most people would perhaps run their whole lives never even thinking about insects. And it's not that they think bad things about insects, it's just they never think about them mm. because their homes are hermetically sealed. Um, they might see the old butterfly floating around in the garden, but they don't look too close. Um, so it's actually important to to draw people's attention to insects. And then if if they come up with some sort of negative idea, you can discuss it with them, try and argue, or at least, you know, try and get some point across. Um, but it's, it, it's the indifference of not caring and not knowing anything at all that I think is, um, is, is much more an insidious threat to our understanding of the natural world. These animals are almost a byword for insignificant, right? They, they, they are small, irrelevant things or, they, or pests, and they do have such... This is the thing that kind of most enchants me about these animals is that they are immediate and close at hand and absolutely bizarre, you know, as, as bizarre as any any enormous large savannah animal or, or, or what have you. They are incredible, I think. Yeah, and the moment you look at them under a, under a lens, um, they're beautiful or strange or ugly or I'm quite happy for people to be revolted by things. Mm. Um, as long as they can appreciate the revulsion is because of some, you know, evil-looking claw or disgusting parasitoid behaviour or something. Um, so, yeah, insects, uh, insects are, you know, amazingly diverse. And being able to talk about the sort of range and to get people to look at them closely is, um, is, is really important. And for non-scientists like, like myself... How would you encourage people to to engage in the insect world from outside of a sort of academic setting? Um, I think, goodness, the um, the well, I think the most buying a limerick book, obviously. Well, obviously buying the limerick book. Mm. I think um, it's by contemplating facts like, you know, uh, there are we don't even know how many species of invertebrate there are on this planet. We don't even know to an order of magnitude. We don't know if it's 3 million species or 80 million species. We we don't understand what they do for the majority of them. We don't understand how they live, where they live, what they do. Our ignorance is vast. Um, And yet insects control the centre ground of every terrestrial and um, aquatic food web in the world. So these creatures actually control our planet and we don't know anything about them. And it's, it's, it's giving people facts like that, that uh, um, trying, to, to, trying to get people across. They don't have to study insects. They don't have to go away and look at them. But they, they should, they should realise, well, not realise, but by pointing out the depths of our ignorance, 
they they should go away with a sense of awe rather um, about these creatures that we are all around us, but we don't see and we don't understand. Even the experts don't don't know or don't see or don't understand most of them. Well, that's a really really nice note to end on, and thank you so much for speaking to me about about myriad creatures. I wonder, would it be nice to end on a lovely limerick? Okay, have you got a favourite? Have I got a favourite? Um, I I really like Caddis because I think oh. it's a fascinating. You know, you just talked about kind of discovering these things about discovering odd behaviours and, and acknowledging how how strange they are. And this is a, a behaviour that I wasn't aware of. So that's it's page forty nine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Caddis. This is a good one. Of course, the caddis is the larva. Mm. The caddis fly is the adult. The four winged sort of miniature dragonfly or lacewing type creature that comes out of it. So this is actually about the larva. The caddis, a master with bricks, made a case of snail shell mix. The spiral designs on classical lines was one of its cleverer tricks. Um, yeah, the caddis flies, it's, it's interesting that um, some moth caterpillars you can identify before they um, turn into the adult moth. And... So same with caddisflies, you can tell what species they are by the way they construct their case, because the the aquatic larvae make a silk bag in which they live, and they decorate and protect the outside of the bag by incorporating grains of sand or very small segments of leaf or twig. And some of them use empty snail shells, tiny snail shells, only a millimetre or two across. Um, and they, they incorporate these snail shells into the silk that they knit their um, protective case with. Um, and they're quite remarkable when you, when you find them in the, uh, in the pond dipping net because um, they, they look as if they're... They look as if they've been built by a designer, an engineer, right. rather than by, you know, a small living in the water well i think that's a, a lovely note to end on because it does encapsulate that thing we've mentioned that kind of you know they, they are one step further removed from our world by by being aquatic but such a a bizarre and unusual and fascinating behavior from an animal that many people simply won't have heard of even so thank you so much yeah. richard no it's been great fun talking to you cheers well have a have a lovely evening and um uh I look forward to your to your next book. Is there any? Would you like to direct people to to where they can get hold of a copy of a Natural History of Insects in a Hundred Limericks? The Natural History of Insects in One Hundred Limericks. Um, it's probably it's a very niche book. I knew that when we published it. So it's available from the publishers, uh, Pelagic Publishing, online, or some of the more specialist Natural History booksellers uh, will carry it. But look out a copy, and uh, I'm sure people will very much enjoy it. Thank you again for speaking to you, Richard. Thank you. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by Tom Sharp with music by Will Hunt. Well, thanks again to Richard Bugman Jones. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram at Grubbing in the Filth or Twitter at GITF Podcast. 
can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com.